Good morning, Hope Chapel. As I was greeting out at the stairs this morning, a gentleman came up the stairs and said, Mike, what's the hot topic this morning? And I said, Jesus is the hot topic this morning. <laughs> Jesus is the hot topic this morning. Jesus is the center of it all. We sang that song. Jesus is at the heart of everything we do at Hope Chapel. Jesus is at the head of our banqueting table. Jesus is the object of our affections. And today, as we search the scriptures, as we walk through the gospel of Matthew, I have one very simple objective for us as a church family. And that objective is very simply for us to lift high the name of Jesus. And once we have done that, to lift it even higher, and then to lift it highest above all. Amen? Amen. So we've been in a harmony of the Gospels for some time now, and in this particular season of studying through a harmony of the four Gospels, we've been spending a lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we're going to be camping out in a relatively short passage lengthwise, but a very robust and rich passive passage theologically. <clears throat> and so, uh, to kick off our time together, I just want to invite you to open your Bibles, turn on your devices draw your attention to the screens, and, and I just want to begin by reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, "'Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath.' He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so in our passage this morning, we have another instance of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And this particular conflict is set over the Sabbath. And as we look at verse 1 of Matthew 12, Matthew is narrating the scene, he's setting the stage, he's painting a picture. And he points out three particular points of context that we would do well to pay attention to. And the first three words of the passage give us the first point of context. What does he say? He says, at that time, at that time. And with these three words, Matthew is pointing out to us that the events that occur in this passage are at some level, loosely speaking, occurring at the same general time, the same season of time as the events in the passage that precedes. Okay, and so this passage right from the get-go is linked to the passage that comes before it in Matthew chapter 11, and that's going to prove significant later on, and I'm going to come back to it. The second point of context is the setting, the narrative setting. And so Matthew tells us that at that time, Jesus, he's the hero of the story, by the way, Jesus went through the grain fields. So we're in the grain fields, that's the narrative context, and Jesus went through the grain fields specifically on the Sabbath. And so that's the religious context. And so we need to keep those three points of context in mind as we go through this passage this morning. And then Matthew goes on, continuing in verse 1. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. This is an important detail. How many of us have ever been hungry? The participation quotient is horrible right now. How many of us have ever been hungry? Yes, okay, thank you. How many of us have ever been very hungry? How many of us have noticed at times when we're hungry, we're predisposed to maybe, how shall we say, being a little bit on edge? There are times, occasionally, rarely, that I come home from work and the day has been so full and so occupying and so busy that I forget to eat lunch. And I'll come through the front door and my wife will greet me. And at some point in the conversation that ensues, she'll ask me something like, Mike, did you eat today? No, I didn't. Why are you asking me that question? And so sometimes when we're hungry, we're predisposed to taking missteps or, or miscalculations with our actions. In that particular case, sometimes our hunger predisposes us to anger and we might become hangry. And that is funny, but on a serious note, Matthew tells us the disciples were hunger, hungry and their hunger led to action. And pastorally, though this isn't the main point of this passage, I think that it's very important to pause um, and be reminded that we, are, we do have a, a biological, physiological makeup as humans, right? As, as God's created beings. And our physiological states matter. There are consequences. Uh, and we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion, does he not? And he seeks to ensnare us, he seeks to trap us, he seeks to develop strongholds in our lives so that he can ruin our lives. And what is the best teacher in life? Experience. Isn't experience the best teacher? And he has had the most experience trapping and wrecking lives. He's been trapping them and wrecking them from the very beginning. And as I was preparing to speak this morning, just it ha I happened to run across my Instagram feed this great quote by John Piper who said that Satan is a lion who devours, partly by pain, partly by pleasure, but always by deception. And so pastorally, I just want to remark while we're on the topic of hungry, hunger that we need to be attuned to our states, that when we're hungry, that when we're angry, that when we're lonely, that when we're tired, we're particularly vulnerable to his attacks. And so when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired church, we need to be deliberate, aware, purposeful about pressing into Jesus, about depending upon Him. And so we see that the disciples were hungry, and their, their hunger leads them to action, which leads to a conflict. And it may or may not have been a compromising action. We'll get there. But their hunger led them to action. Jesus was hungry once, wasn't He? When was He hungry? In the wilderness, after a great deal of fasting, He, became, he was hungry, and when did, the, when did the enemy come to Him? When the enemy tried to tra trap him, when he was hungry. And so when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, when we're, we're experiencing those things, we need to be careful, we need to be aware, we need to press into Jesus. But the disciples were hungry, and Matthew tells us that they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, this particular account is also found in Mark and in Luke. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the gospel writers include this account, and Luke gives us a nice extra bit of high-definition detail. In Luke chapter 6, verse 1, he tells us this in addition to what Matthew has told us. The disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, and that they were rubbing these heads of grain 
in their hands. That's going to become important in just a second. I have an illustration for you. You here you see a hand holding a head of grain that's been rubbed, and you see some of, uh, some of the, the, the grain kernels that have come out. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see a separation. You see the heads of grain, then you see the product that comes from the heads of grain. And so the disciples were hungry. They were walking through these grain fields. They were plucking these heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, separating them so that they could get the kernels of grain so that they could eat them and assuage their hunger. Now, Matthew tells us in verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw it, Pharisees, Pharisees coming back on the scene, the haters, the haters, we have this, we have this saying, haters going to hate, right? <laughs> haters are going to hate. Now, before we go any deeper in this verse, I want to ask you a question. I expect a high degree of participation in response to this question. How many of you like movies? Okay, good. That was very good participation. We're doing better. I happen to believe, well, let me back up. I believe that the 80s was the best decade in U.S. history. And I don't mean to burst any of your bubbles, but by God's goodness and His grace and His mercy, I was born in January of 1980, and so I can say I'm an 80s kid. And I passed over the 70s and the 60s, etc., which were crazy, and, and I'm an 80s kid. And I just happen to believe when it comes to movies that the best movies were made in the 80s. Who's seen The Goonies? It's a great movie, yeah. What about Top Gun? Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, Top Gun's a good movie. One of the best movies of the 80s. There's this great scene in Top Gun where Maverick and Goose two of the protagonists, finally make it into Top Gun, into Miramar, and they're sitting through one of their first lectures. And as we know, Matthew has this escalating tension building with the instructor of Top Gun, with, with Charlie, right, played by Kelly McGillis. And so they're sitting in one of her lectures for the first time, and, and she is talking about lecturing on the capabilities of the Russian MiG-28 fighter jet, right, because the backdrop to this whole scene is, is U.S.-Russian tension right, in the early 80s. And so she makes some kind of statement about the capability or lack of capability of, of the MiG-28 Russian fighter jet. And Maverick very brazenly leans over to Goose right there in the front, right there in the front row. And, and, and they, they begin to confer, and, and she's off-put. And, and then, even more boldly, he kind of says, excuse me, I think you're mistaken. Well, how can I be mistaken? The Pentagon makes sure that I have all the up-to-date information. I have top-secret clearance. And Maverick goes on to say that um, he has firsthand experience. Well, how do you know that? He's so cocky. Well, that's classified, ma'am. Okay, yeah, it's classified. Well, she presses him a little bit further, and he goes on to say that uh, he and Goose were in um, an engagement where they were in a 4G negative dive with a MiG-28. And she goes on to say, well, if the, if the MiG fighter was below you, how could you see it and verify your claim? And in just like a boss, he goes, because I was inverted. <laughs> and she's like, so you're the one. But then she asked this question. You were in an inverted 4G negative dive with a MiG-28. What were you doing there? What were you doing there? To which he responds, communicating. And we know the rest of that story. I don't need to go there. 
But that question is so appropriate for our passage this morning because what's the setting? We are in the grain fields on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees show up out of nowhere. And so the first question we should ask is, what were they doing there? Because the Pharisees' natural habitat was not the grain fields of Galilee. Their natural habitat was probably the synagogue or the town. But like I said, haters going to hate and creepers going to creep. And so these Pharisees, these pesky religious people are creeping after Jesus and the disciples out in the grain field. What are they doing there? Well, if you've been following through our teachings in Matthew particularly, we've been faithful to point out that as Matthew's gospel unfolds, we see increasing hostility to Jesus and his ministry. We see increasing uh, hostility from uh, the Pharisees, from the religious establishment, and it, it intensifies. For example, the Pharisees look on with disdain when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, when Jesus banquets with sinners and tax collectors, when Matthew throws him a party, and the Pharisees say condemning things to Jesus' disciples about Jesus. And in just a couple accounts later, again in chapter 9, we see Jesus heal a mute man, and then the Pharisees say, well, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. You oper he operates by the power of Satan. And so we see this building opposition from the religious leaders, from the Pharisees. What are they doing out in the grain fields? They're creeping. Their distaste for Jesus has turned to disgust for Jesus, and so they're out there trying to discredit them, trying to defeat them, and trying to destroy Him, ultimately. So we might ask, what exactly was so particularly offensive to the Pharisees in this case? Matthew tells us in verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, look, I think there's a little bit of humor built into this. Like as if Jesus didn't know what was going on. Or like as if Jesus needed the Pharisees to point out what his disciples were doing. Oh, thanks for letting me know. I didn't notice that they were picking grain and eating it. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, and here the controversy centers on Sabbath observance. Now the Pharisees were Bible experts right? They understood the Old Testament. They knew it well. They were the experts. They probably knew it better than Jesus' disciples. But not only were they experts in the Old Testament, they were also experts in what we would refer to today as all kinds of oral tradition, right? And so, so the, the religious Jews at that time had built up all of these extra laws around what was explicitly laid out, disclosed, revealed in the Old Testament, and they wanted to be so careful about keeping what was in the Old Testament, that they built all kinds of protective mechanisms, all kinds of extra laws around it. Okay, imagine if you're driving down the freeway, and you don't want to go into the wrong lane, and so you build lots of extra lanes in between the lane you're in and the lane you don't want to go in, just to make sure you don't end up in that lane. So the Pharisees had built all these extra lanes. Now, remember I said it was important that Luke gave us that extra detail, that they were rubbing that grain in their hands. Well, the oral tradition had specified that it was unlawful on the Sabbath to reap, to thresh, and to winnow. And so, when the Pharisees saw the disciples picking that grain, those heads of grain, they saw them as doing the work of reaping. And when they saw the disciples rubbing that grain in their hands, they saw them as doing the work of threshing. 
And when they had the separated materials and discarded the undesirable leftovers into the wind, the Pharisees would have seen those disciples as winnowing. And so according to these Pharisees, according to these religious experts, the disciples of Jesus are doing work on the Sabbath. They are in violation, and Jesus must pay. Haters going to hate. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us today. But Jesus now, in the next few verses, is going to come to the defense of his disciples. And he's going to come to the defense of his disciples by appealing to two Old Testament counterexamples. Okay, and so in the first example, he's going to, uh, in verse 3, appeal to David. And so Jesus says in verse 3, Matthew tells us, Jesus said to them, he said to them, have you not read? Have they not? Have they not read? Have you not? Dudes, haven't you read your Bibles? Of course they've read. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? David was one of the most celebrated, iconic figures of the Old Testament. Of course they knew about David. Of course they read about David. And so Jesus appeals to what David did when David was hungry to defend what his disciples did when his disciples were hungry. Would you like to know what David did when he was hungry? Good, I'm glad, because I'm going to tell you. So he goes on to say, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Okay, so Jesus is now appealing to some actions of David where David breaks some laws. He does does something that is unlawful. Question is, what the heck is the bread of the presence, right? I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, David did something. He ate the bread of the presence. Like, what's the big deal? He ate some bread. How is that unlawful? So, in order to unpack that, I just want to appreciate what the bread of the presence is. And so, we're going to look at a couple verses. I first want to look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 30, to answer that question what exactly is this bread of the presence? And so, this is God speaking. And He says, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly for every Sabbath. So the point here is, it's God's bread. Probably not a good idea to take God's bread from God, right? There's more. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. This gives us a very high definition picture of the bread of the presence. So in Leviticus 24, we see this prescription. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, one loaf representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on a table, the table of pure gold before the Lord. So the Lord has a table, and that table is set before him, and that table is pure gold. This bread is supposed to sit on a table of pure gold. How many of us have a table of pure gold? No hands should go up this time. They don't even have those down on the strand, not even in the double wide lots. Okay, so this is important bread. It sits on a, a table of pure gold. And then it continues. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, expensive perfume, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. This, this bread is set apart for the Lord. It's, an, it's a food offering to him. We continue verse 8. And every Sabbath day, so here we're tying to the Sabbath, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. So every Sabbath, this bread is to be brought to the Lord it is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And so this is a, a 
a symbol of the people's covenant relationship. It's a symbol of their fidelity to Yahweh, all right? In verse 9, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for, for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. And so this, this part of the food offering, this bread of the presence, is to be uh, carefully baked, it's to be presented uh, on a table of gold, it's to be reserved for God, and if anybody is to partake of it, it's only to be those priests, only be somebody of the priestly lineage. So now we know a little bit about the bread of the presence. Would you like to know what happens with David and the bread of the presence? Awesome, I'm going to tell you. So, Jesus is referring back to an account in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So let's dust off our Old Testament pages, okay? And we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 21. I'm going to read you a few verses, then I'm going to give you a little bit of background. So I just want to ask you for radical focus for just a few moments. So we read in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. And then David asks him, Now then, what do you have on hand? Okay. So basically, David is telling Ahimelech the priest that Saul has sent him on a covert op, all right? On a covert operation, it's extremely high priority, and I need your help. Now, what do we know about David? What's the most famous account of David in the Bible? Yes, Bathsheba is one of them, but I'm looking for another one. Right, right, David and Goliath. So David kills Goliath, right? He, he slays the mighty Philistine warrior, and what happens? What happens after David kills Goliath? The people rally around him, right? And the people begin to say, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. And now Saul begins to trip. Saul begins to worry because he realizes that the people are trending towards David, not towards him. He begins to realize that the heart of the people are with David and not with him. He begins to realize that the favor of the Lord rests upon David and not upon him. And things only get more grim for Saul, because what happens next? Saul's own son, Jonathan, covenants with David to be a brother to him, to watch his back, and transitions, switches his primary relational allegiance from Saul, his father, to David, his brother. That's not, that doesn't make Saul happy. It gets worse for Saul. Saul's daughter, Michal, falls in love with David, and Saul is compelled to give Michal to David in marriage, and so now David marries one of Saul's daughters. Saul's whole household is turning towards David. After that, <clears throat> Samuel tells us that the Philistine armies, continue, they didn't learn their lesson with Goliath, so the Philistine armies continue to come against David and, and the men of Israel, and over and over and over again, David thwarts the Philistine armies, so much so that the Philistines go back into their own lands. They're like, man, that's Saul, he's killed thousands. Oh, but David, tens of thousands. So it's not just the Israelite people, but the surrounding nations now are like, they fear David, they don't fear Saul. So as a consequence, what does Saul want to do with David? He wants to install him on the end of his sword, right? <laughs> Saul wants to kill David. 
Saul tries to kill David. David escapes. Then Saul tries to kill Jonathan. Jonathan escapes. Jonathan tells David, dude, you got to get out of here. My dad's whacked out of his skull. He's surely going to kill you, and, and you need to save yourself. And so this becomes like a dire life or death situation for David, right? And we don't know exactly why he goes to where he goes, but he does. After all that happens, we're dropped right into chapter 21, where David comes to the land of Nob and confronts Ahimelech the priest in the tabernacle, right, in God's house. Now, given the background, was David really on a covert operation from Saul? No. So here's David trying to save his own neck. He comes to Nob, to the tabernacle, to God's priest, and lies to him. Lies to him. Swindles him out of the bread of the presence, and if you go on to read, swindles him also out of Goliath's sword. Poor Ahimelech, he didn't even know it was coming. He doesn't know what's still coming. This is not David's finest moment, right? When we think of the moment that's not David's finest moment, we think of another instance where he took what wasn't his, and he, killed, he was responsible for the death of somebody that he should have protected. Well, in this instance, Jesus took something that was not his. It belonged to God. It was consecrated to God. And if it doesn't seem like this is grim now, all we need to do is continue a little bit further, and the picture gets even more grim. Because if we go into chapter 22, we find out that when David goes to Ahimelech, one of Saul's servants was actually present to witness the encounter. And this man goes back to Saul, tells on David and Ahimelech, appropriately his name is Dog. So Saul's dog goes back to Saul, tells on Ahimelech the priest, and Saul's anger rages, burns within him. And what do you think he does? He goes to confront Ahimelech the priest, and then he kills him. But he's so enraged, he doesn't just have his dog kill Ahimelech, he has dog kill all of Ahimelech's brothers and his father and his priestly sons, the whole priestly line wiped out. It just so happens that one of his sons escapes, and we'll get to that in a moment. But not only does he kill Ahimelech, his brothers, his father, all but one of his sons, Saul was so enraged that he also wiped out the entire city. And he didn't stop with wiping out the entire city, he also killed the animals. No mercy. No mercy. All because David went in to the tabernacle, swindled Ahimelech out of the bread. Ahimelech did not even know what was going on, but he paid the price. His whole family paid the price. And what's astounding about this is at the end of chapter 22, we see that Ahimelech's son that escaped comes into contact with David, and they have, they have a conversation. And David says to his son, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. That's heavy. And then David says to him, but stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With, ye, with me you shall be in safe keeping. Now, if I was a Himalek's son, I'm not so sure I would have been able to trust David's word in that moment and had, have had such a high degree of confidence that I would have been safe uh, in his keeping. But we do see very vividly, that this was not David's finest hour, right? And yet, Jesus, in defense of his disciples, 
on the Sabbath appeals to this instance of David breaking the law of eating the bread of the presence to defend them. And so, on a surface level, kind of at a, at a, at a, at a face value level, I think that Jesus is, is saying to these Pharisees um, <clears throat> that, that the Sabbath law was never meant to restrict one from meeting basic human needs, right? Jesus is fle- or, uh, David is fleeing for his life, and he's hungry, he needs something to eat, and so, so, so he broke the law, uh, but the law was never meant to restrict one from meeting a very basic elementary human need. But I also think that there's just something much deeper going on here. And there are some fascinating parallels. Uh, <clears throat> you see here these hard-hearted Pharisees chasing after Jesus' disciples, creeping and hating on them. You see half-hearted Saul chasing after, creeping after, and hating on David, the soon-to-be king. You see David, the soon-to-be king, running for his life. You see him clumsy and breaking all kinds of laws. At any point in David's life, God was justified in just like incinerating him in a moment of judgment. It would have been this moment. But you see, God's hand of mercy was on David. And mercy is at the heart of the Sabbath. It's at the heart of God's heart for the Sabbath. And so in God's mercy, he had a plan for David, and he made allowance for David, and he protected David. And so God's, God's hand of mercy is on him in this moment, and there's just this rich sense of irony in this moment as, as Jesus himself is confronting, standing off these Pharisees and appealing back to David, right? King David, with whom God covenanted to set up an eternal kingly reign. The, 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 the people of Israel were waiting for the Davidic king to come and to set up his throne through which God would reign over all the peoples of the earth and establish peace and justice. And here's Jesus talking to these Pharisees, looking back to David, who as a king ultimately is pointing forward to Jesus. And in this moment, we have to appreciate that Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the king who can save. He's not the king who needs to run. He's the king who can save. And so Jesus appeals to the example of David, but he doesn't stop there. He offers a second counterexample from the Old Testament, and Jesus also appeals to the example of the priests carrying out their ritual duties in the temple on the Sabbath. So oftentimes if somebody comes at you with an argument, a good way to defeat that argument is with a compelling counterexample, right? Somebody says, well, I know this to be a matter of fact, and you say, well, I know this to be a matter of fact, and that directly contradicts what you just said. And so that's what Jesus is going to do in this moment. And so if we look at verse 5, Jesus says, or have you not read, dudes, haven't you read your Bibles? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? And so what Jesus is saying here is there are instances in which the law prescribes work on that day of rest. And Jesus is referring to the priestly duties that are outlined in Numbers chapter 28 verses 9 through 10. I want to look at them very briefly. We see in Numbers, on the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year, a year old without blemish. Those lambs without blemish, they are important. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year 
a year old without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil in its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So every Sabbath, the law itself has prescribed priests to do work, right? That's a compelling counterexample. Like, you know, if I were the Pharisees and Jesus said that, I would have just been like, all right, I'm done. And so Jesus' point is what? His point is, again, at a plain, straightforward level that sometimes the law required work on the Sabbath. Specifically, the law required priestly work on the Sabbath. And so at a deeper point, I think that Jesus is making a very strong statement here. Jesus is saying, if priestly work is permitted on the Sabbath, then my work is permitted on the Sabbath as well. And this is a subtle but powerful disclosure of his identity because the scriptures tell us you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4, this is one of the most quoted chapters of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and specifically the writer to the Hebrews paints this very, very beautiful, theologically rich picture of God the Father and God the Son, co-eternal, two persons, one substance, God the Father saying to God the Son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You, I am making you a priest forever. And so Jesus' identity is being revealed, being hinted at here in this passage. And if we look at Hebrews 6, 19 through 20, God's word tells us something very powerful, very comforting. And incidentally, many of us are not aware of this, but Hebrews 6, 19, verse Verses 19 to 20 is where our church name comes from. We're Hope Chapel, right? And this is the verse that our name comes from. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. A hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Only the high priest can go into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we're just beginning to see Jesus' true identity revealed in this passage. And there's this great irony yet again as Jesus is looking back to the priestly figures and the priestly duties that ultimately point to him. And so we can say this morning with confidence that Jesus is the better priest. He's the better king and he's the better priest. And so Jesus has offered two counterexamples to these pesky Pharisees, but he continues. He now makes some very strong, bold statements beginning in verse 6. And in verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you, Man, you don't ever want Jesus to say that to you. Like, you got it coming if Jesus says, I tell you. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Whoa, that would have been blasphemous to them. Something greater than the temple is here. What was the purpose of the temple? What did it represent? God's presence, right? Represented God's presence. What, was, what were carried out? in the temple. Sacrifices. And who worked in the temple? Priests. And the priests' main function were to be mediators between God and between the people of Israel. And Jesus is saying, yeah, the temple, it's obsolete now. Something greater is here. I'm here because I am God. 
God's presence is right before you, but you blind, hard-hearted, sinful men, you don't see it and you're unwilling to see it. You can't see me because you won't see me. Something greater than the temple is here because God was there in the flesh. Something greater than the temple is here because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that was the fulfillment of all those old sacrifices. One sacrifice for all that was sufficient forever. And of course, Jesus was greater than the temple because he's the ultimate mediator between us and the Father. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 tell us, beginning with verse 1, that the law was a shadow of the things to come, the good things to come, the better things to come, instead of the true form of those realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Those ritual sacrifices could never make us perfect as we want to draw near to God. And let's just jump to verse 4. Back up to... But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year. In these sacrifices, there were a reminder of sins. Jesus is not, as a sacrifice, a reminder of sins. He is a remission of our sins. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Something greater than the temple is here because, friends, Jesus is better than the temple. And he continues into verse 7. And if you had known what this means, Jesus says, if you had known what this means, this language harkens back to chapter 9 of Matthew. Again, when when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, banquets with Matthew and his friends, and the Pharisees look on with a condescending gaze, a judgmental gaze, speak out to Jesus' disciples against Jesus, and Jesus, aware of what they're saying, responds to those Pharisees by quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and Jesus tells those Pharisees, the religious experts, right, the Bible scholars, he tells them, go and learn what this means. And that's formal rabbinic language that Jesus invokes to basically say, you guys don't know anything. When a student would study under a rabbi, it was customary for a rabbi to say to the student, go and learn what this means. Go and study and come back to me. And so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, the truth, says to these rabbis, go and learn what this means. And now just a couple chapters later, chapter 9, 10, 11, we're in 12, Jesus probably confronts these same Pharisees, and as they come against his disciples to try and come against him, Jesus now says, if you had known what this means, in other words, you guys didn't go learn what this means, you still don't know, you're still tripping, you're still creeping, you're still hating, you still don't get it, you still miss me. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus understood, Jesus knew that the Sabbath was to be a help and not a hindrance. And here we see Jesus communicating the very heart of God. For the second time in just a few short chapters, Jesus quotes, he cites Hosea 6.6. What do we know about Hosea? Who did he marry? He was a prophet to Israel. He married Gomer, right? Who was she? She was a whore. She was, she, was, she, she, she was an adulteress. She was unfaithful. Yet God, God called Hosea to be faithful to Gomer as a picture of his covenant faithfulness to his people Israel. As a picture of his chesed. That is a Hebrew word. That's the Hebrew word that's used here in Hosea 6.6. 6, For I desire steadfast love. Steadfast love. I desire my chesed. 
Okay, now, Jesus, now God is saying through Hosea to the people, I want steadfast love for you, not tons of sacrifices. It's the heart that I'm after. And when he says, I want chesed, I want steadfast love, he's saying that he wants our hearts to be oriented to him as his heart is oriented towards us. And this is such a rich word. You'll know that in our New Testament, when Jesus cites this verse, it's translated mercy, but in Hosea, it's, trans, it's translated steadfast love. And that's because this word in the Hebrew has such a rich, deep, robust meaning that it's very difficult to communicate in one term. It's not, it's not easy to translate one-to-one. It communicates God's mercifulness. It communicates His grace. It communicates His goodness. It communicates His kindness. And it communicates His love, which is steadfast, which is enduring, which He does not withhold, which He gives freely, which He gives abundantly, which He doesn't withhold from us. And so God is saying to the people of Israel, I desire from you what I give to you. And Jesus is saying to these hard-hearted Pharisees, as if they were hard-hearted people of Israel, which would have been shocking and offensive to those Pharisees, you don't even get it. I want chesed. I want mercy, not sacrifice. And here these guys are hating on Jesus' disciples. And mercy, chesed, is the farthest thing from their hearts. But here as we see Jesus revealing the very heart of God, the very disposition of God, God's greatest desire for His people. We see Jesus speaking as a prophet. A prophet spoke on God's behalf to the people. Sometimes words of judgment, calls to repentance. But here we see that Jesus is the better prophet. He utters the words of Isaiah. He is the better prophet. And, and, and Jesus should stir our hearts. And so thank you for that, amen. Please feel free to celebrate Jesus and to shout words of rejoicing if his word stirs your heart this morning. So Jesus is the better king. He's the better priest. He's the better temple. He is the better prophet. But Jesus does not stop there. He's going to conclude this passage this exchange with a climactic exclamation point. He says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a figure of authority, that apocalyptic figure from Daniel chapter 7 who rides on the clouds of heaven in the Jewish mind. Only God was set above the heavens in the Jewish mind. Only God rode on the clouds. And so Jesus is very explicitly saying to these men, I, I am the Son of God. And I am God the Son. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You may not bow your knee to me now, but you will bow your knee to me eventually. I am God from God, begotten, not made, co-eternal with the Father. I am who I am. I'm the King of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. <clears throat> and so here Jesus is making a remarkable claim of authority. Who prescribed the Sabbath? God in the Ten Commandments. It was a, a central piece of the Mosaic law, a central component. And if God prescribed the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments, who alone has the authority to say anything or to rescind the Sabbath? God. 
And what does Jesus say here? The Son of Man has authority over what? Over the Sabbath. And so there's, there's this tremendous irony yet again as Jesus is talking to these hard-hearted Pharisees who we must be careful not to look too condescendingly on because sometimes we're more like them than like the disciples. And so we must always examine our hearts to make sure our hearts are not hard and that our hearts are appropriately submitted to Jesus who has all authority. But there's this tremendous irony because Jesus, unlike those religious experts, understood the Sabbath itself was an expression of God's mercy. What happened after the fall? Work became labor, right? Because of the curse. And as God carved out His covenant people in Israel, and He gave them as an act of His grace the law so that they wouldn't be guessing about a whimsical and possibly capricious God like all the surrounding nations, as God, as a function of His initiative, goodness, and grace, gave them the law. David said that He delights in the law, that it revives the soul, that it gives life to the soul, right? As God, in an act of grace, gives the law, He prescribes a day of rest. God rested, I rested, you will rest. You will not have to toil always. I give you a break. And so at the heart of the Sabbath is that it's a help and not a hindrance, and it's an expression of God's mercy, but here's the irony. Jesus is the greater Sabbath because He is the greater expression of God's mercy. Remember when I said at the very beginning that those first three words of this passage were important at that time? that this, connect, this passage is loosely, temporally speaking, connected to the passage that precedes it. I want to read to you from the passage that precedes this passage. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what for your souls? Rest, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls. I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, Jesus said. And then he demonstrated that he's not Lord of the Sabbath, but that he is our Sabbath rest. We no longer have to rest on the day we rest in our Savior. The Sabbath prescription is the only one of the Ten Commandments that Jesus does not explicitly reiterate under the New Covenant. He reiterates every single one of them in the Sermon on the Mount, a new Torah for a new covenant, but he does not reiterate the Sabbath because we have freedom in that area because we are to find rest in him now. And he says it in the passage that just precedes this encounter with the Pharisees, come to me and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. And so what do we see about Jesus, church? We see that Jesus is the better king. We see that Jesus is the better priest, that he's the better temple, that he's the better prophet, that he's the better Sabbath, he's the true Sabbath. Everything points to him. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it all. And the only inevitable conclusion that any first century open Jewish person could come to is that he is the Christ. Church, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. And he is Christ our shield. Is Christ our shield. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation, none for those who are found in Christ Jesus. And he just said it. He said, take my yoke upon you, right? It's easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does that even mean? In that time when 
A yoke would be a, a mechanism that two ox would strap into, and if one ox was much greater and stronger than the other, then that one would carry the burden, carry most of the load as they dragged the plow behind them. And so, Jesus is Christ our shield because He took the full yoke of the law and He lived perfectly because we could not. And so, as we strap into the other side of the yoke, He is pulling all the freight. He is pulling all the weight. He is doing all the work. He has done all the heavy lifting. We just need to strap in and rest with Him. And because of His perfect observance of the law, we need not fear condemnation when the enemy brings accusation against us when we fall short. Notice that Jesus did not eat the grain. Jesus did not pick. He did not eat. He did not reap, winnow, or thresh. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this account. In every account, it's only disciples doing that work. And whether that work was right or wrong, according to the letter of the law, Jesus vindicated His disciples. He was their shield, and He kept the law perfectly so that He could be our shield. And so, at the heart of the gospel message, friends, is that Christ is our shield, but He is not just our shield. He is also so much more. He is also our sacrifice. He is the better temple. He's also the better priest. He's also the better sacrifice. The apostle John tells us in his brief letter, 1 John Chapter 2, verses 1 through two, 1 through 2, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you would not, you may not sin. You would not fall into sin, be ensnared by it, your life dominated by it. But we sin, don't we? And so John says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, and our advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. And John does not leave it at that. He goes on to say that He is the propitiation for our sins. And that is a robust and sexy theological word to mean this, that there is a God who has righteous indignation, righteous anger, which is provoked by sin. And because He is righteous and holy in good, he must be angry at sin. But all of his anger against sin was absorbed, was taken, was satisfied by Jesus when he hung on that cross. So Jesus did not just die a bodily death. Jesus spiritually absorbed all of God's just, righteous, holy fury for what you and I have done. He was our propitiation. Many people today have a hard time believing that God could be angry. How could a good God be angry? How could a good God not be angry at pedophiles and murderers and rapists? And just yesterday, the New York Times ran a story about how ISIS in the Middle East is establishing a theology of rape, and they kidnap young prepubescent girls and rape them to death. How could God not be angry with that? But then... Oftentimes, we don't have a problem thinking that God could be angry with that. We just have a problem thinking God could be angry with our sin. Well, how could God be angry with me? I'm a good person. Are you? The Pharisees thought that they were good people, and they missed Jesus completely. Yet, for those who 
recognize by the grace of God their sinfulness. Those who submit to Jesus and recognize, I have nothing to bring to you, Jesus, but a pile of my own sin. He will receive you. His, his, his death is efficacious to cover your sin. God's wrath against your sin has been absorbed by him, and you can find rest. And so he is Christ our shield, and he is Christ our sacrifice. He died our substitutionary death. He took our our, our, our punishment upon himself, but he's also Christ our sovereign. He's our king. He's not just our savior, he's our king. Many of us are easily given to claim Jesus as our savior, but are we willing also to claim him as our king? And let me tell you something, we do not make Jesus our king. He takes the place of kingship in our lives. If you truly know Jesus, then he will be your king. Revelation chapter 19 says this, about the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus who will return on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ, our sovereign, the ultimate sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And finally, not only is he our shield, not only is he our sacrifice, not only is he our sovereign, he is also our sympathizer. You see, we serve a God who is not disinterested, disconnected, or disenchanted with us. We have a Christ who is deeply concerned with our every need, deeply concerned with our condition, deeply concerned that we be reconciled to him. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, broke that perfect Trinitarian fellowship, injected himself into human history, took on the yoke of human flesh, observed the law perfectly, was tempted in every respect like we were, was tempted even more intensely than we were, tempted face-to-face, -face, confronted by Satan himself after 40 days of fasting. We have a Savior, a Christ, who understands what it means to be disappointed by people. We have a Christ, we have a sympathizer who understands what it means what it means to suffer in this life. We have a Christ, we have a sympathizer who understands what it means to lose those who are precious to us. The most painful sting in this life is the sting of death. It is the ultimate experience in our existence of the curse resulting from the fall. But because of Jesus, we have an essential element of our Christian hope, the truth the death does not have the final say. And though in Christianity we meet the God who suffered, in Christianity we meet the God that died, Jesus tasted death so we would not have to taste it eternally. And when we say goodbye to those we love, we have the hope that just like Jesus was reunited with his Father, we will be reunited with them. There is no greater message, there is no more hopeful message than the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we preach the real gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not preach a prosperity gospel, we do not preach a watered-down gospel, we preach the true gospel. That's the only gospel that we have hope in. And just this final word. He is Christ our sympathizer, and because he is our sympathizer, he knows each and every one of us. He knows each and every one of you. He knows me. He knows you. The question is this morning, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Have you met this Jesus? If you have not met this Jesus and he is calling you this morning, I invite you 
implore you to respond to him. Respond to Jesus. I want to invite the worship team up. And we're going to worship Jesus as his church because we have, through his word, lifted his name high, higher, and highest above all. And he's worthy of our worship. And so let us respond to him corporately as his church in worship. The worship team is going to come up. And I want to extend this invitation. If anybody here does not know Jesus, but you want to know Jesus, the elders will be available in the front for prayer. Please come forward and let one of our elders introduce you to Jesus because that's the most important introduction that you will ever make in your entire life. The most important question you will ever be asked is who do you say that I am? And the most important answer you will ever ever give is who do I say Jesus is? And so come meet Jesus this morning. And if you have needs, if you have hurts, come, come be prayed for by the elders. Come find rest in Jesus, amen? Let's pray.